I am Jesse Mesotovis, and this is who I am. Battlestar Galactica, Defiance, and Sharktopus. He also works in his own comic book series, Pages of Eight, and Trouble, Guts, and Noir. This is a two-part interview. Uh, this is part one. Part two will be in two weeks. Jesse, welcome to the show. Hey, it's good to be here in your garage. Yes, <laughs> the, the breezy, breezy, chilly, beautiful man garage. Yeah. So... <clears throat> You grew up in, in Guam. Yep. And, as far uh, away as you can be and still be in the United States and around people. <laughs> so, yeah. You can go to Wake Island, which is technically the furthest you can get away from the United States in that direction, but nobody really lives there. I mean, there's like a handful of people. I guess there's like still a military post there, but, you know, it's not populated. So Guam is, the, that's where the saying, the tourist board saying for Guam is where America's day begins. <laughs> Where the sun rises first mm-hmm. on American soil in the world. So, yeah, that was, yeah. Were you introduced to a lot of American culture whilst there, or does it have its own, is there more of a, a yeah, Eastern a, influence? Or? It's a, man, it's a, it's mashed potatoes, man, it's crazy. Because um, I grew up, all the media stuff, this is funny, because living in Southern California now, television stations on Guam would buy programming just straight, unedited, you know, basically from Southern California. So I grew up li- knowing the uh, Fidelis Dodge, Fire, what, Firestone Exit, blah, 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 Southgate, <laughs> right? And like, uh, uh, this is Cal Worthington and his dog spot. <laughs> all the kids growing up in my age knew all those Southern California, you know, culture, you know, references and stuff. Mm-hmm. Never having set, in, set foot there. You know, but then there's, you know, the, the Japanese occupied the island in the Second World War and there's leftovers of um, of that kind of, you know, military presence and stuff like that. Like we were still eating military rations, you know, handed out by the Navy up until I was like six years old. Mm. You know, like during disaster times, you know, the Navy would just, you know, the CBs would come around, fix, like dig you out of, a, you know, all the mud that came into your house and they'd hand out rations, you know, and stuff like that. So... There's this massive military presence, you know, this weird, you know, media cultural presence, you know, from the United States. And you still had uh, at least half a million Japanese tourists coming into the island every year. And I'm like, this is the weirdest place in the world because these two people used to be completely at war and now they can't avoid each other. You know, (laughs) it's just like now they're, you know, spending money and, you know, doing all this. It's just it was really weird to me Mm -hmm. knowing the history and looking at the world and like that, well, I'm glad this is, this has gotten better. <laughs> you know, nobody's shooting each other anymore. This is awesome. But yeah, it was a weird place to grow up mm. when, I, when I think about it now. And what was yeah. your exposure to animation and, and what made you want to go into that path? Uh, well, that was really easy. Um, everybody there, just like they bought programming from Southern California. Sometimes those tapes that they bought from Southern California were really old. Mm-hmm. So a lot of Southern California stations back in like the 50s and 60s bought animated programming, mm. right, from Japan. You oh, know, right. you would have Gigantor, uh, Mazinger, 
Battle of the Planets, you know, or excuse me, G-Force, whatever, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> you know. Um, I grew up watching all the Toho movies because they, you know, they, they were played regularly, you know, as part of the programming that got bought from different you know, mm-hmm. stations and whatever because it was old programming. Yeah, and it, and it had gone through the, the American filter. like the, uh, Yes become, and no. Right. You know, sometimes we would get dubbed versions. Sometimes mm-hmm. we got Japanese versions, mm. you know, so I was like. I can't understand a word of this, but I'm watching it anyway. <laughs> this is awesome. You know, yeah. like whatever, it just looks cool. <laughs> you know? Uh, but yeah, especially the the shops and stuff that were still owned by like, uh, you know, Japanese, you know, uh, uh, half Japanese families and stuff like that that stayed on the island. And even half Vietnamese families, they would get, you know, Korean or Japanese or Chinese programs or comics and then we just be in the stores, mm-hmm. you know, and kids would just eat it up, you know, along with the candies and, you know, all the other stuff. So it was like, it was a weird, what, what's the fancy word, uh, uh, a melange mm-hmm. of Western, Eastern, you know, and then my own culture, mm-hmm. you know, which is like, wow, this is like, you want a mixing, you know, a mixing pot or melting pot. That place was like, you know creepy fondue of some kind <laughs> just like three level fondue four level fondue fountain of culture you know just ending up in this you know it's still delicious but you know mm-hmm. who knows where it came from <laughs> it's like wow but i only i only recognize that now because it's out here and things feel a little more uniform mm-hmm. you know yeah you can see the direct influence of things rather than the you know the mishmash as much mm-hmm. i think you know so yeah, that was that was up until I was twenty five, and then you know came out here. So. Mm. And what brought you out? Yeah, man, I I watched just like a lot of guys <laughs> saw Jurassic Park. I said, "All right, how do I do that?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, well, it was, it was more than that. It was like, um, like any movie that came out before Jurassic Park, like Terminator Two. Uh, that was another huge one was like, uh, that opened my eyes like, wow, they can do that now. And then Jurassic Park just said, screw it. I got to do this. Mm-hmm. You know, it was the trifecta of Terminator 2, Toy Story, or actually it was first, it was Terminator 2, then Jurassic Park, then Toy Story. By the time I watched Toy Story, I was so infuriated at what I was currently doing that I that I just lashed out at everything, got fired from the job I was at, <laughs> you know, because I was just being such an unruly prick, basically. Sorry. <laughs> but, yeah, I got fired from that. I was like, all right, I set myself up for this. I got to leave now. <laughs> <laughs> Someone's going to come to the door with some handcuffs soon and or something because I'm just like, I don't know if you get that feeling, but it's like you know you're not doing the thing you need or want to be doing so bad that mm-hmm. it just screws up your life. Yeah. That's what happened to me. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, this sucks every day that I can't do this new thing that I'm seeing on TV, that I'm going to the movies and watching about, that my friends hate when I talk about because I keep going on and on and on and on about it. And they just like, oh, they end up hating me. People end up hating me. I end up hating myself. I'm like, all right, I got to get out of here. I got to do this or I'm going to freak out and die or something. And just, I literally split overnight. Mm. It was like bought the ticket on a Tuesday, you know, the flights back then out of Guam were ridiculously expensive. You know, it was like a, at the time, like 1995 was $800 just to get to California, Mm -hmm. you know, and then, you know, another couple hundred bucks just for whatever expenses, you know. Uh, And that, to me, at the time, I was not making a lot of money. That was pretty much all the money, all the cash I had on hand at Mm -hmm. the time 
I had a black duffel bag, crammed it full of everything I owned that I could take with me, and that was it. By one, by Thursday, I was in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So I was like, and that's, that's the funny thing is that, or actually by Wednesday, I was like in San Francisco, but it was actually Thursday on Guam because that's the way the, you know, the camp, <laughs> it's 18 hours ahead. So yeah. I'm like, wow, I already lost a day and I just got here. <laughs> <laughs> you got some catching up to do. Yeah, like, dude, I got to run. I'm like, yeah, it was, it was really ridiculous. Mm. I'm like, just... I actually, the week before I bought the ticket, I needed, I knew I needed to make a demo reel. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm like, I ran down to the Mac store, or the, which wasn't a Mac store at the time. I called it the Mac store before I, you owe me money, Apple. Cause <laughs> I was the first one to call it a Mac store. Uh, but my friends, it was a place called Marianas Electronics mm-hmm. and they, they had all the high end Macs, right. And for rent, you know, no one had ever done that before. And I was like, all right, how much is it? I was like, oh, it's like a couple bucks a day or something like that. It was, I think it was like $30 a day at the time. So I rented all the gear that I need, knew I needed to make a, a demo reel. And then a friend of mine, if he ever, I should email him because he, I know he's probably going to listen, <laughs> or at least his family will. Uh, I've, I've got a friend of mine, Herman Chrysostomo, who had the, at, at the time, the only top-of-the-line editing bay available. Mm-hmm. And he edited my demo reel for free. Mm. Just because, like, he was so into it, too. You know, he's into Max. He was a big-time photographer at the time, you know, on the island, did all the commercials, did all the great, you know, uh, portrait photography, you know, at the time. Really talented guy and super mellow, you know, just really ridiculously mellow guy. Uh, he actually went to school in California. Mm. He went, I think he went to the art center. Oh, okay. And in the film program. Yeah. And he knew, like, guys like Michael Bay and all, all those, you know, like, uh, in that class of film school students at the time, LA mm-hmm. Film School and stuff, he knew all those guys. And, he, he you know, not only did he edit my, my reel for free, uh, he gave me all the numbers of these people I could call when I got to LA, you know, if I went to LA, if that, because I was, I told him I was going to San Francisco first. Mm-hmm. And he's like, yeah, here's a couple guys you should call, you know, and they can give you some good advice, you know, what to do, where to go, you know, if you need supplies and that kind of stuff. Um, but he was just so into the same things I was, you know, visually, like computer animation. How is that done? How does it integrate with my studio? Because he was needing work like that, too. And I was like, to this day, like, if I ever see him again, because I haven't seen him since I left, and I've never been gone back to Guam since, you know, to this day, I'm like, I always think about that guy, you know, I was like, without that it was a crap reel totally crap reel if you look at it today it's like <laughs> what the hell are you thinking this never gets you a job but it was at the time cg was so new anybody looking at it would be like whoa oh my god that's you know holy mm-hmm. cow you know you did that on a desktop computer and mm-hmm. like yeah right out of college you know it's like it was this goofy thing of like i had i had repurposed these 3d illustrations i did for a magazine where i was an art director mm-hmm. uh, it was like a, a gorilla on a motorcycle and like a weird spaceship head thing and you know another spaceship and then uh a, a really neat little vignette of this is kind of harsh to say but i don't know if you remember the movie memoirs of a geisha mm-hmm. i guess that story was actually either inspired or based on a story from a real life account that was written into our magazine and I did illustrations for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically of these uh, Japanese, you know, mixed race prostitutes, you know, on the islands in the Second World War. Mm. And I did this illustration not wanting to actually do a CG woman because at the time that was like, that's the holy grail. Nobody had touched di- digital humans. Mm-hmm. But, it, you know, she there were vignettes in the story about 
life by lantern light, you know, uh, but a particular kind of kerosene lantern that everybody on the island has Mm -hmm. and that they used back in the day, you know, and then her combs. So I had this illustration of just like this dimly lit table with a lamp, a kerosene lamp and those combs. You know, and to me, and I animated this little path around it. And at the time, it was the most photoreal thing I'd ever done. Mm-hmm. And now you look at it now, it's like, this doesn't look real. That looks terrible. This is blah, blah, blah. You can pick it to death. <laughs> but at the time, you know, people weren't, you know, it had candle, uh, that lit wick. You know, it had a refracting piece of glass, you know, that actually bent light through it, you know, semi-realistically. It had the fluid at the bottom. It had uh, a, a slightly caustic shadow with that, that glowing sort of luminance to it that you expect to see. And then these little jade combs, you know, kind of sitting on the side. And I was mm-hmm. like, I'm really proud of that. You know, and like, I think that alone got me my first job in San Diego. You know, I was just like, oh, we've never seen work like that. And we like doing 3D, you know, as part of our regular services now. And it got me my first job. Hmm. What you was know? the first job? Well, I was working in a place called McIntyre Advertising. Just thinking about it, it's like, mm. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was one of those like God, I gotta get out of advertising, but hmm. it was it was a way to finance the other thing because that Jeff understood that, and I remember telling him this like, look, man, this is what I'm here to do. I want to either get into break into comics or break into animation, mm-hmm. and if those opportunities ever come up, you know, I hate to do this to you, but I, I gotta skip, you know. And he said, yeah, don't worry about it, you know, don't worry about it, you know. Mm-hmm. This is a great. You know, what we got now is working great, you know. And by the time we get on our feet. You know, we should be able to, you know, you know, call our own shots, you know, when the time comes. And when the time came, I was like, I just signed it all, all over to him. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a company called 760 Media in San Diego. We just did ad specialties and, mm-hmm. you know, um, really kind of uh, innovative marketing, if you ask me. <laughs> you know, we started taking advantage of uh, uh, the Internet and faxing and electronic media Way before I remember, you know, it ever being popular or mm. common. You know, we did, we had like Nextel, McDonald's, and Submarina, and uh, Denso Technologies, and all these like really interesting tech companies at the time. You know, Sub, Submarina wasn't like a tech company, but they were interested in in new media and new ways to get people into the stores. So yeah. It was like. People who were hip to, you know, just two guys in a garage, basically, you know, because like, that's really what we were. We had no office. You know, I was working out of my sister's house, mm-hmm. you know, in an upstairs bedroom. And he was working out of a, a, a house he shared with, you know, a couple of roommates. And we made it work. And it was kind of cool, you know, mm-hmm. for a good long time. Mm-hmm. You know, two guys would just show up, pitch you some marketing, you know, whatever, and then we'd split, and then you'd get your stuff, and it was like, oh, great. You mean I don't have to drive down to Hotel Circle or on the other fancy places in San Diego and whatever to get, you know, my work done? And, like, people, people, you know, kind of like that. Our clients like that. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like, I don't have to do anything. I just call you on the phone or you come when I call, mm-hmm. you know? So it was like... Yeah, it was really, we were the, we, we actually had, <laughs> we actually had our first mobile phones, our first cell phones financed by Nextel because mm-hmm. they were so adamant about us being in complete, total contact that they <laughs> gave us their phones. And, you know, while, you know, while they were clients, you know, nobody, you know, I don't know, people, that's commonplace now, you know, I guess. But at the time it was like, 
wow, what is that thing? It's a cell phone, man. Check it out. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> how much? Yeah, these things cost a lot of money. You know, this is like in the early 90s, mm-hmm. know, mid-90s. You know, it's yeah. Like, nobody was, you know, nobody was really doing uh, that level of, you know, just push marketing. You know, and it was like, all right, let's do this. It worked out all right. He's, you know, I think the company's gone now. But, you know, he lasted, uh, Jeff Donnelly, actually. I had, man, I haven't talked to There's a lot of names we're going to bring up. <laughs> it was like 20-odd years now. Like, gosh, you know, you should really get in touch with him and, like, see what's going on. Because I know, he, I think he actually folded the company finally when he got married. And uh, actually, got he, uh, I think he may have just moved on to a, a bigger and better company and, um uh, you know, it, it was an oper- another vertical opportunity, I guess, you know, use those marketing buzzwords and whatever. But uh, it was a nice subtle or a nice short legacy to have to uh, have this little, you know, no name company kind of, you know, have all these big shot clients. You know, <laughs> it's like, wow, what kind, of, what kind of clients did you have? Like Bob's Pool and Spa and Sandy and Sereno Mesa. I'm like, no, man, we had, uh, you know, McDonald's and uh, Nextel. And, uh, you know, all these you know, big billion-dollar companies. And, like, we're just two guys. And we show up in our, you know, beater cars and do your <laughs> marketing. It was pretty hilarious. Mm. Uh, to go back momentarily, yeah. uh, what did you study at college? What's that? Oh, what? uh, communications. Oh, okay. Uh, for, well, first it was art. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> people think, man, if somebody hears this, they're going to, gut me like a fish (laughs) but man the art program as much as i thoroughly loved my art instructors and professors all i will mention lewis rifkowitz in particular for inspiring me to get the hell out of the art program (laughs) (laughs) great guy you know really young guy hip he was like the first college professor i ever saw who had and it wasn't a fake and a knockoff a true a real cbgb's Mm t-shirt Because that was one of those cultural references that I got that that surprised him. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm fug. You know, one more f- beep, ugly girl. That's what it's, yeah. Yeah, CBGBs. Yeah, the Ramones, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, how do you know that? You know, like, hey, man, I'm not an ape. <laughs> you know? Like, we have MTV here, man. You know, like, I just, yeah, it was hilarious that I could talk to him on a, on a kind of man-to-man, you know, friend to friend level but i say that he inspired me to get out of art because he kind of gave me a hard time a Mm -hmm. lot about my work being so commercial Mm -hmm. i mean way more so than all the other profs and like because they under they got it they knew the arc i was on you know this guy's gonna leave you know don't don't mess with him but lewis was you know as a younger teacher and i was like no you have to get this wired you have to get this curriculum first before you go off and do your you know silly commercial stuff <laughs> it's like give me such a hard time but you know this is this is a total ego brag every time i made something in his class the class would just guffaw they just go wow like that they would, i would be entertaining like i remember one of the projects i had um well the assignment actually was uh wind mm-hmm you know, he'd give you these elemental level sort of environmental art or sculpture. It was a sculpture class. He would give you these themes to work off, and one of them was wind. And I had always, I know, as on the island, you grow up, you see sailboats all the time. I always wanted to learn how to sail. I could never afford a boat. You know, a good friend of mine, Craig, 
Craig Ender's boy, there's a flashback. <laughs> <laughs> this, he was a kid who, who actually learned how to sail competitively, those little laser mm-hmm. um, craft boats or hobby, or not, uh, what do they call those? Something craft, uh, Hobie, Hobie craft, those catamarans. His, his parents and him were competitive. And they would sail these in regattas and stuff like that. And, you know, I was always obsessed with that. So in the sculpture class, I made a, a land yacht basically with a fixed airfoil sail mm-hmm. right it was it was totally an industrial design project it was not sculptural at all right but i tried to make i, I was just such a dick about it. <laughs> i'll make it kind of like artsy in a sculptural body but technically it, it's engineering wise sound <laughs> the art was tacked on is what i'm trying to say and it really really made him mad but it worked you know this airfoil generated lift but because it was perpendicular to the ground, it was a sail. Mm-hmm. And it's a concept that I saw, you know, later on in the America's Cup. Because, you know, it was one of those America's Cups that, you know, was controversial because they used this new sail design. It's basically an airfoil. And, oh, you're cheating. And this is not traditional. And, like, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I did the same thing. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the class was just, I put this thing on the ground. It was like hoping for a windy day and it was like windy all day and I was like yeah this is going to be great this thing's going to take off like a rocket and when it th- and when it did everybody class was all like they they applauded and it was like yay <laughs> and then Lewis is sitting there like stupid <laughs> like what's wrong with you man <laughs> it was like because the because I put a smile on somebody's face you're pissed off at me I'm like come on well, I, I did that with every project mm mm-hmm. And just to tie in the whole Jurassic Park thing, he tried to to get me not suspended, but he was looking for an excuse to fail me on this project because I had referenced a diagram from the Jurassic Park art book. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I say reference, you know, it's not like I trace the damn thing, you know, like I used it to, to measure the proportions of what they used as a T-Rex. Like, all right, does that match up with the natural history's proportion? I did all this refer- you know, reference and research. It wasn't copying. And he was just trying to nail me. Yeah, but you copied this, right? Like, no, I didn't copy. Here's my <laughs> sketch, man. Here's the template. Lay it on top. Does it match? No. <laughs> you know, it's like, ah, oh. every opportunity this guy, man. It's just like poke, 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 poke. It's like, hey, man, you keep poking me. I'm going to punch you. It's <laughs> just like. Remember that I'm still it's like I'm one of those guys God, you know, like it still makes me angry. I mean I know that's like a you need psychiatric help at that point. <laughs> still makes me mad. But yeah, just this I did this um it was basically a, a wood toy. Mm-hmm. But you know most wooden toys are like, oh it's a ducky or it's a you know, it's Santa Claus or it's a bear. I did a T Rex. You know, it had moving arms, it had a moving jaw, it had a poseable tail, and it could stand. And it stood two feet tall mm. and it was like five feet long. And I carried that thing around school and people followed me. <laughs> just, like parents ran up to me like, how much is that? Where did you buy it? You know, like I didn't. I made it. And like, how much is it to make one for my kid? <laughs> I need three. You know, like leave me alone. I just want to make, you know, like it was great. And like the thing weighed like 30 pounds. Mm. It was it was interior grade uh, three quarter inch plywood. You know, it was beautiful. Like it was pine, you know, that, that raw pine look. It looked like, you know, those wood toys, unvarnished. Mm-hmm. And it, it had like three-quarter inch lag bolts. Those are the only things strong enough to hold the thing together. But it stood on its own and 
every um, you know every red blooded you know American kid would look at it and like oh, I want one of those you know I can you can stomp on my sister with it or it was just. <laughs> To this day, I, th- I always say to myself, you know, when I retire, I got to make those end masks because those are just cool. Mm-hmm. You know, it had locking ankles, you know, because if you, you look at a T-Rex's leg, everybody calls it a chicken leg. And there's you have to lock it at the ankle or at the thigh. And I had built in these little locks behind the surface form so that that leg would only compress so far. But you could extend it as well forward and backward to pose it. Mm-hmm. And the locks would prevent it from, you know, falling on itself basically but another weird memory that i made i finished that thing or i started it and finished it uh both before during and after the largest earthquake ever recorded on guam Hmm. uh and i think at the time ever recorded in the world wow and i was working at a at the pacific daily news for lee weber there's another name (laughs) thought of in a long time Um, he's a publisher of the, the newspaper back home that i worked at and uh I was working there at the time. I was in the building when the earthquake hit. It was like in the afternoon on a Sunday. And I was still, ha- I had, it was like the most stressful time of my life already. <laughs> and like, we're working an all nighter to do this coverage for the earthquake. I got exams the following week. I got to finish a T Rex. You know, <laughs> I'm working part time too at this other, you know, I was working part time at the paper, working part time as an airbrush t shirt artist, mm-hmm. going to school part time. So it was like, if you do the math, I never slept, you know, for like a week. You know, it was ridiculous. You know, this unbelievably fertile time of, you know, I did this crazy amount of work uh, in the newspaper, which got me like a, a Best of Gannett Information Graphics Award. And then I was going to, uh, uh, working at this airbrush t-shirt shop, uh, just trying to make, you know, ends meet, you know, pay my own tuition, all my expenses and stuff like that. Uh, I had a great week at that shop because people were coming in and like, I survived the earthquake, blah, blah, blah. And just and making these t- crazy T-shirts and masks, making hand over fist money. And I was mm-hmm. like crazy like that. And it was just one of those weeks that was like, oh, God, how did I live through that? Because I did not sleep. I barely ate. And I was under like 100,000 pounds of stress. And like even my sister was freaking out. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, man. Crazy memories, man. Mm. Yeah. And how long were you in San Francisco for? I was barely there for like two months. Mm-hmm. You know, I ran out of money and said, screw this. I called my sister in San Diego. I got to get out of here before I end up on the streets. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> here's my, my welcome to San Francisco story was, <laughs> I get it. I get into an apartment with two of my friends from college, uh, Mel Sycon and Debbie Petrus. They were dating at the time. And, you know, I was just like third wheel guy in the living room. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she had a skylight in this apartment because she was the first one to move to San Francisco and Mel and myself showed up later. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I'm like thinking, it, I'm lying there going to sleep thinking this is the biggest mistake I ever made in my life because like I looked at my bank account, I got no money. I got a duffel bag full of like ratty clothes and two pairs of shoes. I'm like, I'm going to be homeless in like a month mm-hmm. <laughs> if, I don't, if I don't find a job like post haste. No sooner do I am I like thinking this than a police helicopter just beams that bright sunbeam in the middle of the night through that skylight right into my face <laughs> for like five minutes, and I'm like laying there in bed, like just come in and arrest me, man. Whoever the hell you think I am, because I'm just lying up here, my hands are around my back, like 
I'm like chilling at the beach watching this guy just shining his light right in my skylight. Like, what the hell do you want, man? I'm like, SWAT team's going to show up. I'm going to go to prison. (laughs) Like, (laughs) false arrest. You know, it's the end of my life. And it's just stupid story crap going through my head. And like, and it didn't even wake up anybody else. Mm. I'm lying there like, God? (laughs) (laughs) No, that's not God. That's the, the police, the San Francisco police department and their idea of a joke. And like, no, I'm not making out with my girlfriend, man. I'm just lying here. I just got here. Thanks. You know, like, we got one. He's from Guam. We should arrest him now. <laughs> you know, like, forget it. It was the stupidest night. I'm like, lying there thinking, all right, what's my next move, man? I got to do something. You know, mm-hmm. It took years of, like, floundering around San Diego before, like, any real opportunity, you know, reared its head, mm-hmm. which was... When I got to Los Angeles, all right, let me back up. Worked at Visionscape Imaging. I actually got in and got a job and showed them my portfolio because I showed up to user group meetings that they hosted, <clears throat> which was kind of like, it was a neat little community thing, but to me it was more like, uh, it was more mercenary than that. It was a way to scout out the talent pool mm-hmm. so that Matt, could, Matt McDonald, the owner of the company, could hire people that he needed. Because CG at the time was still kind of a rare, you know, there, it wasn't being taught in schools. Any, uh, it was enthusiasts and stuff and hobbyists and guys like who had studied similar topics in engineering or, or um, in university that ended up in CGI mm. for, in the early years. Um, so I showed up to this user group meeting. I had my own stuff. I used Lightwave. It, it, you know, it was kind of like, oh, yeah, you should come in, you know, check out, uh, you know, some opportunities. I got I maybe got a job for you. Ended up working there. Um I ended up leaving there with like a dozen other employees almost within a month, mm. you know, just evacuating the company basically. Totally made him mad, you know, freaked him out, you know, like, how am I going to get my work done? So I, I totally understand why he did some of the things he did. I understand him panicking, but I don't understand him, you know, actually calling our, our new supervisors, our new companies that we worked at and saying the things that he did. Mm. And this, you can't deny it when, you know, these guys have the voicemails that you left in their inboxes. Like, you can't say you didn't try to, to blackball us because, mm. you know, that's you on that machine, <laughs> you, know? you know. It was, it was tragic, you know. We, we were trying to, you know, me and like a, these dozen other guys left a company that we felt, you know, it's, it's, it's work for hire, you know, that we felt didn't offer us what we wanted to get out of our careers and this new medium and, you know, these new techniques and this other company was blowing up and they offered us, you know, an opportunity, you know, you know, it's that California law that protects, um, protects work for hire people like that. You know, it's like, if you get another shot somewhere, you can take it, you know, just split. Mm -hmm. You don't owe anybody like the two weeks notice. That's a courtesy. You know, it's like, if I'm going to bail, I'm going to bail, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know there's, there's a reason they call it a ripcord, because, man, you better rip that thing out of its socket to get that parachute out. You know, like, uh, yeah, that was that was another uh, early working CGI thing where we, uh, I left Visionscape Imaging. Uh, I worked on things like the cinematics for Twisted Metal, Jet Moto, um, God, I forget, we, a defunct version of rock and roll racing, if every, anybody remembers that. It would have been really cool. Uh, design work for all kinds of stuff that never saw the light of day. And I was like, you know, this is starting to be a pattern. Mm-hmm. I need work to be out in the world to prove that, 
you know, to other companies that, it, you know, the game shipped or something shipped, you know. So Foundation Imaging, uh, another imaging company, Visionscape Imaging, Foundation Imaging. I don't, I don't work at a place unless there's imaging in the word <laughs> in the title <laughs> somewhere. Um, but, yeah, you know, the, uh, Ron Thornton, who passed away just a few weeks ago, you know, uh, you know, he, he and Jeff Sheets hired almost everybody from Visionscape Imaging that was, you know, ready and willing to come up to Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And after that, it was like, you know, just job to job, you move to, uh, you move around, everybody just sort of filtered through the visual effects community of Los Angeles. You know, the uh, foundation imaging was like 150, 200 guys at one time, I think. I, I'm not sure if we ever got up to 200 people, but it was big. It was like well over 100 for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And almost every one of those people filtered through company after company. It was like, um, it was like a, a, somebody ex, uh, described the recent rhythm, rhythm and hues um, bankruptcy as a, a diaspora of talent. <laughs> After that, this amazing company goes under, their progeny just spread, you know, <laughs> like mm-hmm. poll- and pollinate, you know, all over the community. And like, that's basically what happened early on with Foundation Imaging. Mm. There were guys that, you know, went on to places like ILM and um, other companies locally, smaller companies too, you know, smaller, but not, you know, that's not derogatory in any way. It's just, you know, staffing wise, you know, these boutique companies that do really high quality work, but they, you know, they stay a certain size, you know, and they, they take certain kinds of projects and yeah, projects that everybody, you know, you, you're watching all of these things, you know, a bunch of my friends ended up on all the CW projects, you know, mm-hmm. flash, you know, speaking, getting, bringing it back to comics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, my friend Sean, he works on uh, a lot of those uh, CW, uh, what is it, Legends of Tomorrow, Supergirl, Flash. Yeah. What are the other ones? Is it one or two others now? Um, not Gotham. Gotham is... Gotham's but I do. I, I think I know the uh, one of the on-set visual effects supervisors for Gotham because hmm. he worked on uh, uh, Battlestar Galactica briefly. And, uh, you know, it just it's... Everybody knows everybody, or if you don't know every anybody, you know one or two people. It's it's not a six degrees of separation business. It's a two degree, mm-hmm. if that, you know, for everybody, I guess, in post-production. So if, if I don't know somebody, I know somebody who knows somebody, and that's where it ends. Right. You know, it's like, that's it. Count to two, and you're <laughs> kind of there. <laughs> and is it because um, visual effects became so ubiquitous and, 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 and now are yeah. used so casually in, in every like walk of television, even for the most simplest stuff, they, yeah. they have visual effects in there somewhere. Yeah, or a budget or a line for it. Yeah, is that know. is that the your your work eventually found itself being more into um, into television and to films and and stuff, or was that something that you wanted to maneuver to oh, because no, of I've, Jurassic Park? Or yeah, yeah, I ended up uh, after Foundation Imaging and after Rhythm and Hughes, I spent a lot of time, uh, almost two years at. Well, maybe a year, a solid year and a half at Rhythm and Hughes, mm-hmm. close to two years. Uh, after I was let go from there, uh, I ended up, <laughs> people say it's like a, well, you took a big career step backward because I ended up at a place called United Film Organization and they do those, at the time, I call them Saturday night specials. Mm-hmm. You know, they're these crummy knockoff CG 
focused sort of movies that either ripped off or eh, ripped off as a crappy word. They just sort of emulated big budget hits mm. of the day. Mm-hmm. So I remember one of the last ones I worked on was a version of uh, the Grendel story. All right. And it was around the time that uh, Sony was going to come out with their big budget, all CG Beowulf. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Same story. Yeah. You know, like, but ours featured this ex-UFC champion guy and, you know, our our excuse of visual effects. Because <laughs> it was like six guys here and like a handful of guys in Bulgaria trying to do 300 effect shots, mm-hmm. you know, in like two months. That's just ridiculous, you know, or even three months is ridiculous. Uh, people don't scoff at that now. You know, like people think it's ordinary now and it kind of is. Only because, you know, like the machines have gotten faster, software's better. But back when we were doing it, it was like people would watch these movies like, you know, and, and joke about them on the Internet. Yeah. It was when, it was in those early days. It was before Sharktopus, which, you know, I worked on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like the schlocky, you know, CGI, you know, low budget. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they're the kind of the, the movies that the people yeah. hope uh, grandmothers accidentally buy right. at Christmas yeah. time. And I mean, they're made made and sold strictly, in my opinion, just to fill the airwaves. Mm-hmm. And because you know, the because somebody, I mean, the guys at UFO actually got it down to a science. And then these, there are other production companies that, that kind of invented the technique that if a big a big motion p- picture studio spends a hundred million dollars on their marketing budget. And you make a, a similar version to that movie or similar thing, anything similar to that movie, you just, you know, got your movie marketed for free, mm-hmm. you know, for million, to the tune of millions of dollars. And if it's even remotely close to that movie, you know, somebody will say like, oh, I, can't, I can't buy that movie on DVD for 30 bucks, but this one's 10 bucks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the same thing. It's like. You know, I can't afford a Mercedes. Oh, I'll buy that Hyundai. It's that's a Mercedes for poor people. <laughs> <laughs> so, but the I, I always tell people, and it's not a rationalization, but I always tell people that those were the best days. It was so much fun working with these clowns. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm like I call them clowns very affectionately. Guys like uh, Terrence Walker, who is another comic book. Uh, uh, he's made uh, titles for. Uh, Tokyo Pop and his own stuff and mm-hmm. he's made his own animated features uh, or animated shorts and stuff like that I don't think he's actually made a full full length feature yet by himself but he tried yeah. <laughs> or he's been trying and he, he came out with a book <laughs> he's a super funny guy and I still talk to him we still joke with him but he made a book and, and a short film called Understanding Chaos mm-hmm. and <laughs> our mutual friend PJ used to always joke that Less understanding, more chaos. <laughs> you know, because like, it was all like like a like an anime styled feature about the chaos theory and all this mm. kind of pseudoscience mixed in a um, science fiction and stuff. <laughs> I just remember that even to this day. Less understanding, more chaos. <laughs> uh, it was pretty funny. But yeah, the, I, I spent a lot of time at UFO making those features, kind of using. Like I remember Sid Mead says it's you call it seducing the process mm-hmm. in that I did the same thing to UFO that Sid Mead did to Blade Runner mm. in which he, he says he seduced the process in that he used that uh, production to finance some of his own ideals and and long, you know, forgotten projects 
or just concepts. Right. <coughs> I did that on every project at UFO. You know, like, oh, we got a, a movie about uh, <clears throat> gargoyles. That's these monsters. Like, yeah, I know what a gargoyle is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I had these old designs that never got, um, that never saw the light of day that I thought were superior or more interesting than what, you know, any director selected on previous projects. You mm-hmm. know, and I always maintained that when I did uh, concept art uh, for anybody that, all right, I'm, I'm, I know I'm an employee, but when it comes to concept art, I want to do these at home and whatever you don't use ends up as in my intellectual property. You, what you select and what we get, if you're cool with that, sign this and you, you get, you get all full rights to whatever the final design is, but mm-hmm. any development stuff belongs to me. Mm. And a lot of people were cool with that. Yeah. You know, up until I worked at UFO. So at UFO, you know, I I used the process to inject almost every project with some failed, some unused, some, you know, darling project of my own. You know, the the version of Grendel that we came up with, uh, the version of uh, Grendel's mom, the version of the Gargoyle we did. Uh, there was even this, it's called, <laughs> you can look this up. SS Doom Trooper, right? <laughs> just these ridiculous, you know, like CG movies that, you know, the, the directors in, in a lot of these projects, you know, everybody jokes, or to me it's a joke, that TV is a producer's medium. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> Let's see about this. Yeah, you end up, you know, calling the shots, but you don't actually design anything. You don't actually, the medium is visual and nothing you're doing is visual. You know, so to me, that's, that's always a crack up when some producer, you know, television is a producer's medium. I'm like, okay, you know, if that medium is cash, yeah, it's a producer's medium, you know. But I, I injected so many of those projects with just things that I wanted to get out of my system. Mm-hmm. You know, like this is, I hate looking through my own portfolio and saying no one ever, no one will ever see this, you know. And like, I know we were talking about Frank Lloyd Wright earlier. And on the Ken Burns documentary about him, there's one of his friends, a journalist, who comments that, you know, an architect isn't an architect unless he gets to build. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to a degree, that's not true about artists and, and concept artists, because there's places that all they do is publish concept art for movies that have never been made. You know, but at the time I was working, it was the opposite. It was... It was Nobody gives a crap about the concept art if the movie doesn't get made. It was exactly that architect's problem. Mm-hmm. You know, like, this concept is never going to see the light of day. It gets no validation if it sits in my portfolio. You know, like, it has to be born. You know, it has to be on screen. I yeah. did that a lot at UFO. And, yeah, I spent at least, oh, my God, what was it? It was 2003 to 2008, mm-hmm. something like that, just working on all of their, you know, Locusts, the Eighth Plague, <laughs> which was, it, it starred Dan Cortez from MTV's, uh, what was it, Extreme Sports Edition MTV, Dan Cortez reporting. That guy was the lead in that movie. Mm-hmm. But it had, it, that movie had the added fun and benefit of us, the, the visual effects guys, getting to do the, uh, uh, like some of our own ADR. Mm-hmm. Like there were, there were characters and gas masks and stuff like that. So you didn't see their lips move. So they let us do the dialogue. Right. And some of the walla and, you know, background noise. Yeah. 
but I got to do this one scene. And if you watch the movie, you can totally tell it's me, you know, like I'm this guy who's stuck in a chamber and the locusts are on the other side and he's trying to, to work the mechanism to close the iris door that keeps them from killing everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, and I got to let out this like blood curdling scream of getting murdered. And I actually got the work on the shot itself. So it was this weird round robin of, I did the, I, I, rigged the bug i animated all the bugs i i composited the shot and i did the voiceover work (laughs) and i was like (laughs) i could have been in this show you could have just shipped me i could have done the whole thing man it would have been this weird gestalt filmmaker thing like i have to be in my own shots (laughs) it's like it was nuts but that was the the the, i'll say it that was the funnest you know because that that's the best word to describe what, what working on that stuff was like. You mm. know, it was so immature. Yeah, <laughs> you know? and it sounds like it was quite free. You know, it, it was oh, yeah. quite open and it, it probably there. There was no opportunity for anybody to say no mm-hmm. because you were doing it so fast and so cheap. Yeah, it's like we're basically giving it to you. You know, like on you know on a platter. You know, you're getting this for free. No one else will do this for less than two or three million dollars and just post-production you're getting it for a song you know you pay your actors uh catering budgets more than the visual effects budget on this movie (laughs) don't complain you know but (coughs) you know it happens but that was that was a rare rare feat Mm -hmm. that we drove up the street and walked into the booth and i remember somebody told me when i did my scream you know, it was in a it was in a um, a studio, but they heard me outside. <laughs> it was like everybody's soundproof room. Like, nope, you can hear Jesse. Like, Wah! just like you can hear him through the doors. I'm like, you said make it like a death scream. That's my death scream. <laughs> it was like, yeah, I'm pretty loud. Yeah, it's, sue me. You know. That's it for this episode. Join us in two weeks for part two of the Jesse Mazer Tervis interview. You can find us online at whoiampodcast.com and you can email us at whoiampodcast at gmail.com or phone at 818-308-4066. You can also find us on iTunes if you want to subscribe there. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jamie Gamble, and that was This Is Who I Am.